Hi, I'm Karen Elliott, and you're listening to the District B-Sides Podcast, where you'll hear in-depth conversations with council, staff, and community members to take you behind the decisions that are being made on topics that matter to Squamish. Now let's tune in and join the conversation. Hi, I'm Natasha Golbeck. I'm the General Manager of Community Services for the District of Squamish. I'm also the Operations Chief for the Emergency Operations Centre, which we've activated to respond to the COVID pandemic and corresponding public health orders. For all intents and purposes, this means that we are in it right now. We've had a lot of opportunity to see how this situation is evolving from all angles and notice the areas where deeper and more nuanced conversation would add some benefit. We're gonna talk to Megan Latimer, our Emergency Program Coordinator for the district. We're gonna talk to Kara Triance, our officer in charge for RCMP, and to Thomasina Pigeon, who is one of the co-founders of the Vehicle Residents of Squamish Group, and Louise Walker, the Executive Director of the Squamish Chamber of Commerce. Finally, we'll hear from our Mayor, Karen Elliott, about her reflections on this evolving situation. Thanks so much for joining us. We're here with Megan Latimer, our Emergency Program Coordinator for the District of Squamish. Uh, And Megan has had a very exciting and action-packed career. And she's very unassuming and very private, so you'd never know it. But I have heard that she's done things like, um, what is it called when you, not detonate bombs, what's the opposite of detonate? Uh, Disarm. Disarm. She has disarmed bombs. So, Megan, can you tell us the craziest thing you've ever done just before we get started? Sure. Um, So probably, yeah, relating to my former career when I was doing bomb disposal and landmine clearance, um, one of the places I worked was Sri Lanka and we had to actually um, deactivate landmines there because we didn't have the explosives to destroy them. And so I just remember standing in the middle of a minefield at the end of the day, we would go and collect all the mines that our staff had found and we'd have to disarm them. And my very first one, I remember picking it up and and holding it and trying with my Leatherman tool to <laughs> pry out the the little booster and de- detonator plugs underneath while it was about 45 degrees in the sun. And I had a circle of about 40 men standing around me watching, you know, this, this woman who'd come in and was like trying to figure her way out operationally and <laughs> sitting there with my my landmine my landmine and my leatherman trying to <laughs> trying to disarm it oh so that was probably one of the craziest moments in my life where I definitely reflected and was like what am I doing here is this is this what I want to be doing and and it absolutely was it, it was fantastic it was so much fun um and terrifying <laughs> it's so amazing and so you know you can imagine for our listeners that we're in really good hands here and certainly I will say as Megan's boss that she is incredible and always has everything under control so I know there's a lot going on right now but we're on it don't worry we have the right people in the job tell us what's happening from a trend perspective like where are we at right now in the arc of cases is it continuing to go up is it flattening we've seen different reports on different media sources what are you seeing Yeah, it's a really good question. Just to start out there, it's really important that when people are looking at the trends, they're looking at what's happening here in BC and what's happening in Canada and not confusing that with some of the other contexts um, because we're seeing different things, you know, down in the US where we're seeing a really rapid rate of spread. Here in Canada, it's a bit different. We had testing early on. That really helped us figure out what the situation was on the ground here in Canada and how fast things were spreading and where we really needed to target our efforts. So here in BC, we had some modeling data released on Friday, and it actually really helped us understand the picture a bit better in terms of where we're at right now. So we are still on the the upward part of the curve. I think people have probably heard um, talk about the curve, and and that's really the the climb in the spread of cases uh, in BC. So as as we increase, we're kind of climbing up um, to what we call the peak of the curve, where we expect to have the highest number of cases. And what we learned on Friday when the province released some of that data was that um, some of the measures that have been put in place in the last couple of weeks, some of these really difficult measures around physical distancing, having to stay at home, not being able to interact with each other, limiting our trips out, some of those measures that we're putting in place, they're actually working. So we're not as high up on the curve as we expected to be. Um, And that's really because of those control measures that have been put in. 
what the data is telling us is that the percentage increase day by day is about half of what it would have been if we hadn't put those measures in place. So that's really important. What we're doing is working. It means we need to keep doing it. So the risk is that if we relax the social distancing and other isolation measures too soon, that we'll see a spike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's difficult for people to be locked in their homes and be separated from each other. And, and we're, I think we're all struggling with that a little bit. Um, but it is working. And, and what we understand from the medical health officers um, is that the incubation period of this virus is two weeks. It means that it's in someone's system for 14 days. And so those spikes can really be controlled by keeping those who might already be infected inside and isolated from other people for a two-week period. So we're kind of coming to the end of that first two-week period where we've been in the social um, distancing mode. And, and we're seeing that decrease in terms of the rate of spread, but it's really gonna be another um, incubation period before we can really understand what's going on and, and how much longer this might go on for in terms of this journey up the curve. Right, can you talk a little bit about testing? I've understood that the faster we can get testing deployed and results back is going to limit our need to do social distancing measures in future waves of the virus or maybe even later in this wave. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so testing was really key in the beginning, um, testing everybody, understanding where there were clusters, where there were outbreaks of cases, and really being able to target efforts, um, in particular to places like the long-term care homes, where we've very sadly seen some, some of the larger outbreaks here in BC. And now, one of the issues with testing is, it's not that we don't have enough test kits, it's that we don't have the swabs to be able to test everybody right now. And to be honest, now we're at the point where it's not necessary to test everybody. Um, we need to be testing these areas where there are clusters to understand and, and to identify the positive cases. So in particular, the long-term care homes, in the hospitals, to really control the spread in those environments. But we now understand that in the community, not everybody needs to be tested because with these social distancing measures that have been put in place, that's preventing the spread right there. So you don't need a test to say whether you're positive or negative. If you're feeling sick, you need to be staying home. I guess what we're dealing with a little bit is a trade-off of economic impacts versus effective virus control measures. If we had early testing in place, would we be able to minimize social distancing and therefore minimize the impact on the economy? It's a good question. I, I think, I mean, it's important to underline too that we did have early testing in place. Um, I don't know if we would have been able to avoid going through this process of social distancing. I think it, it, it is a huge trade-off and we're seeing that, that discussion, you know, ethically, socially and economically in, in many countries, not just here. And I think it comes down to you know, a, a, an ethical framework where we're preserving people's lives um, in the long run. And, and that means everybody's lives. And yes, it will have an impact on us socially and economically. But at the end of the day, if we are saving somebody's grandmother or mother or father, grandfather, then, then it's definitely worth it what we're doing right now, that sacrifice that we're making. Are you seeing a lot of... Um new ways of connecting coming out of the community? Are, do you have any hope for the way we're going to change as a culture and a society in the future because of this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities that are coming up because of this. I think we're seeing a lot of altruism, a lot of people reaching out and connecting with their neighbors who they might not have otherwise talked to. You've probably heard about the uh, the 7 p.m. cheering for first responders and healthcare workers in the community where people are coming out on their decks or into their backyards and banging pots and pans and, and cheering for all those frontline workers. And so that's a form of connection. That's really important. But I think in the broader picture too, we're seeing really interesting transitions into things like remote working where we might not have had that before. We've accelerated that process. We're bringing on board new ways of working with technology and replacing a lot of paper-based systems. We're looking at 
you know, a complete restructuring in terms of the way that social benefits are administered by governments. So there's there's definitely a lot of things that I think are have been looked at for many years by different governments, but are being accelerated because of this. And that's a really positive thing. Those are amazing points. I have another question about data. And I don't know how important this is, but I, f- I feel like it might be important. There's a reason why we look at, as a key performance indicator, new cases versus active cases. And if you look at active cases, you see a much different arc than if you look at new cases. Yeah, so when we think about active cases, that number is reflecting a much longer duration. So the the duration of the the virus is 14 days. So when we're talking about active cases, um, when we look at that on a a day-by-day basis, we don't see the numbers change as quickly as it would with new cases. And it's not as good of an indicator in terms of our overall um, population health metrics of whether the of whether the control measures we're putting in place are working or not. So when we see a reduction in the number of new cases, that really tells us that what we did two weeks ago is working. When we see changes in the active cases, that's really muddied by a lot of other factors because it's taking into account um, that people could have been infected during the previous period of two weeks. Right. Totally. That makes sense? Yes. I feel like I just talked myself in a circle. What else do you think people are confused about that would do with some additional explanation? I think people are confused about different levels of jurisdiction here. And I know I get confused by that too. I think in Canada, we have a really complicated governance system and there's a lot of players that are responsible for different pieces. And in this case in particular, we're really seeing that come to the forefront. So this is a this is an emergency that's led by the health authorities at the provincial level. And that's really different from what we see with something like a wildfire, a flood, where we have a lot more control locally on those kind of events. And we're really the leaders in those kind of events. With this, we're a little bit in the back seat in terms of we're providing support to the health authorities at the provincial level. They are driving a lot of the decision making on this and a lot of the policy and we are helping implement that at the local level as best we can. But there are some things that we don't have jurisdiction over um, until the province actually mandates that we have jurisdiction there. Um, For example, when we were looking at the closure of BC parks, there were a lot of people asking um, for restrictions to be put in place in terms of access to BC parks, but that doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of local government. We can, of course, talk to BC parks and ask for them to um, share their plans with us and to understand what their uh, strategy is going forward in terms of, of closure of parks. Um, but really that that's that ball is in their court um, and they're being mandated by the province on that. It's not us necessarily asking um, them to close. So we can certainly request it, but the responsibility is on their part. So I think there's been a lot of learnings around that for the community. And I think that's absolutely understandable because we have such a complex system, but um, it really underlines the fact that, you know, we're doing as much as we can do um, as local government. And it is very challenging because if there's other things we do want to do, we don't necessarily have jurisdiction there um, or legal authority. Right. And and to that point, can you talk a little bit also about the state of local emergency versus the provincial state of emergency and why we're not locally in a state of emergency here? Yeah. So... Um, You did see in BC a few governments did early on declare a state of local emergency. Those have all been suspended at this point. Um, Normally we declare a state of local emergency to to respond to an emergency in our area. Um, With a pandemic, it's a little bit different. Um, Pandemics don't respect borders. They're not in just one area and not in the other. Um, With this one, it really requires a higher level of response, coordinating the efforts. And that's why with COVID-19, you're seeing it led by the province and really ultimately by the federal government in terms of our direction, in terms of our in terms of our policies uh, around responding to this. Um, The governments that did declare a state of local emergency early on, those have all been suspended now with the exception of the city of Vancouver. Um, City of Vancouver is a little bit special because they have their own community um, charter, whereas other um, local governments in in the province of BC all fall under the, the provincial community charter. Great. 
That was very helpful. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So we're here with Kara Triance. She's our uh, officer in charge for the Sea to Sky District for RCMP. And uh, she is managing the enforcement deployment, of course, for RCMP and enforcement resources related to the public health orders and general risk reduction for the community with respect to COVID. Uh, so she's here with us to explain a little bit about the enforcement orders. It's been extremely confusing, even for us within the bureaucracy, because the orders are complicated, public information can be conflicting, and most importantly, it is rapidly evolving. And for a while there, the content of um, the orders was changing every day. So we've been trying to figure it out. The uh, metaphor we keep using is that we're building the airplane as we're flying it. And us on the ground here in public administration are trying to interpret and execute uh, in order to keep everybody safe. So Kara has been leading that from the enforcement side and she's going to tell us a little bit about what's going on. Um, Kara, first of all, can you explain uh, what is the content of the public health orders as they are right now? There are three primary orders that we're enforcing right now. One is the quarantine order. One is uh, gatherings over 50 people. And the other one is non-essential businesses that are operating um, outside of the public health orders. So I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the calls that we're getting in. I, I get calls for bylaw and also related to RCMP and the calls you get as well, I'm sure, of the same nature that people are calling in very upset and very anxious about other members in the community not adhering to social distancing uh, guidelines. And uh, they call and say, why aren't you doing anything? Mm -hmm. These people are just walking around, they're gathering in tra trailheads out front of my house, or you know, my, my landlord's kids are running around getting in everybody's way and getting in everybody's space, and this is putting me at risk. Yeah. And as you know, protective services, we're not totally able to respond to this yeah. because we don't have uh, social distancing in the public health order, so we can't just go walk around making it rain tickets for that particular issue. What are your thoughts about this? What are members doing right now to try to help encourage people to keep socially distant? I think we should offer some clarification there. There is no enforcement powers for police or um, bylaws on social distancing. If we see a grave uh, public health concern, we have the ability to engage our medical health officer who has uh, some powers under the Public Health Act to enforce quarantine, to enforce uh, gatherings over 50 people and non-essential business operation. The rest of um, the social distancing measures is not unlike and can be compared to uh, the public health officer is telling us to wash our hands. They're telling us to wear uh, protective uh, equipment when we go to work as frontline workers. They are telling us to get appropriate rest and stay well in other ways. Um, that's the same as social distancing. They're telling us to socially distance so that we can uh, essentially starve this virus, right? This is a direction from the public health officer on how we're going to move forward to address this. Um, this is harm reduction. This is the principles of harm reduction, right? If you talk about harm reduction in other areas of health, um, we look at it and, it, and and you know, policing, I think one of the more complex things that people don't realize that police officers are facing every day when they go out there to do their job is there are gray areas and there are sometimes no clear path forward. Um, so you will take in each situation, uh, conduct a risk assessment, look at it uniquely, and decide what the right path forward is. Typically speaking, we find that most people want to um, protect the community, uh, voluntarily comply with these orders, maybe don't understand them, um, but needed some public education on, on what the uh, concerns might be. And our police officers have been very successful in attending gatherings. Perhaps it was uh, earlier in the days at a park or a beach or a uh, playground um, and speaking to the families or the individuals involved and explaining to them why social distancing and uh, gatherings of people were not um, healthy or safe at this time. There's been a lot of information on ticketing and um, fines that the police can issue. This has been um, addressed by the province in issuing a provincial state of emergency and um, 
bringing all communities on board the same orders. So the province has asked us not to issue local states of emergency and to do this as a coordinated provincial effort so that we don't have 178 different local states of emergency. So we are all operating under the authorities granted by the provincial state of emergency. Vancouver is an exception and currently does have an active local state of emergency, which is what gives them additional powers to do things like you know, ticketing and fining for um, for not adhering to the to the orders. So your comments about uh, the provincial health officer being able to give verbal authorization for enforcement of, from from peace officers or medical health officers is that with respect just to the quarantine, the gatherings over fifty, and the non-essential businesses? Correct. That's my understanding of it. But I am also aware that social distancing is being asked of all of us as our civic duty. Um, it is not an option in order to keep our communities uh, safe and healthy, but there are no enforcement measures in place, uh, to my understanding. So in 20 years, I have not seen this where information has changed daily on right. what we're dealing with. Like wildfires have happened and we respond every year. Uh, practiced and ready and able to respond to wildfires because we've dealt with wildfires uh, year in and year out. Mm -hmm. So while there is a provincial state of emergency with wildfires, we are prepared and ready to respond. The province has a plan in place. We have planned and practiced for this. Um, mm -hmm. We're ready. This is new. We have not had a global pandemic. And while that is written into our operational plans, we have discussed it, we have read it, we have prepared. Um, to this magnitude, uh, I haven't seen it in 20 years. 20 and and years, the please. speed of evolution as well. In all of the emergencies I've been part of, the, the speed of change is totally unprecedented in terms of our levels of authority, the measures that we're taking to reduce harm and risk. It's unbelievable and it's very, it's very challenging to keep up and keep it, especially in the context of public organizations, which by their nature have checks and balances that lead us to move a little slower than the private sector. So we're in this rapidly changing environment, not having the tools and the infrastructure to keep up. So that it's certainly been some, some learning for, for all of us. Absolutely. And, you know, just yesterday I was in conversation with my sister-in-law who is deployed on uh, nationally for in the United States of America with the their federal emergency management program and uh, she's responsible for um, a large proportion of uh, paramedic response right now they are um, preparing to and are surging in an entire replacement of their pre-hospital care and their paramedic care for ambulances in New York City and the one thing that she said that really resonated with me was, Kara, continue to do what you guys are doing in British Columbia. If I can um, offer any hope or inspiration from a uh, international perspective and a healthcare professional dealing with this in uh, another country is what you're doing in BC is incredible and you need to continue to stay the course in order to keep your community safe. Uh, hold that line and do what you're doing. Encourage people to not uh, become complacent now that we're starting to see some progress in um, slowing down the number of cases that are confirmed COVID cases every week. Uh, don't get uh, lazy with that information. Continue doing what you're doing. Um, continue taking the safety measures with your police officers and your paramedics and your hospital staff, um, making sure that everybody is doing the proper decontamination and uh, wearing the, pr the protective personal protective gear, the PPE that we've been issued. I've gotten a lot of calls over the last little while with, um, from the public about wanting people to go out and interface, wanting protective services members to go out and interface with members of the public. And certainly we are doing that to some degree and where we have personal protective equipment in place, that's, that's much easier. Can you talk about the measures that have been put in place to protect members from viral transmission? Yeah, so police officers are um, right now presently equipped in the Sea to Sky RCMP detachment with half masks that have filters on the side that screw on the side, um, not unlike what you would see in industry or lab work. Um, if you were to walk into any sort of uh, CDC lab for testing, you will see them wearing the half masks with the screw-in filters on the side. Our police officers are all issued uh, half masks and replacement filters. Uh, they also have uh, goggles that, that are similar to... Um, uh, what you would see a swimmer wearing. They're, they're fully sealed goggles that um, allow them spit-proof um, um, eye protection. And then from there, they've got uh, their 
usual duty gloves, which are often a Kevlar glove or a leather glove that are um, slash resistant. And they wear those gloves and sometimes they'll be wearing um, a disposable glove uh, as well. So to see a police officer pull you over a roadside and perhaps approach your vehicle, um, if it looks like they'll have to get within six feet of making contact with an individual, you're going to see them don their PPE. And their PPE looks really different. And talking to a police officer with goggles and a face mask uh, and potentially uh, um, something to cover their heads is very different than what we're used to seeing our police officers look like. And it can be alarming and it can be fearful for community members to have to talk to a police officer in this way. But they're also making sure that they're not transmitting if they're asymptomatic and don't otherwise know that they might be a carrier of COVID-19, um, wearing their gear is really important for you as well. So please don't be alarmed if you see our police officers out there on the street um, conducting uh, business as usual. Police work is a essential service. It's a critical service. And while we might not be um, out there in our community doing the same level of proactive community work that we might otherwise be doing in times outside of a pandemic, we are still responding to calls for service. We are still doing a lot of proactive work to keep your community safe. What are you seeing in terms of changes in crime trends as a result of the pandemic? So we ran our um, bi-weekly crime stats through our district analyst uh, yesterday, which was um, really helpful to us just to get a measure of what we'd seen um, over a two-week period. So two-week period over another two-week period and just comparing year to year, uh, 2019 to 2020. Uh, looking at some of those stats, we're seeing that um, Squamish is on par with last year, the same two-week period last year. We're seeing the same level of property crime. We're seeing the same level of mental health calls, uh, family violence calls, and uh, similar related um, crimes. And this is a, just a really bare bones look at it. We have not had the ability to pull an analytical support um, extensively for this. We've just done a quick glance at, um, at, at the statistics, but we're seeing the same number of calls for service, approximately um, no increase in property crime year over year for this two week period. Uh, we did see a little bit of radio silence and calls went for service went down when uh, the global pandemic became public media um, at large, right around the time before spring break started. Um, we did see a decrease in calls for service. Uh, it seemed as though there was a little bit of containment and a little bit of um, sort of slowdown in policing requirements. And then that has over a two week period picked up and we are steady. Uh, the last 72 hours have been pretty uh, steady for policing in uh, Squamish particularly. Um, and we are seeing those um, increased pressures that we anticipated would come. You can't, um, you can't put a lid on, um, on criminality. Generally speaking, criminality is uh, driven because of um, individuals who are impacted by whether it be mental health, drug addiction, poverty, um, trauma, those issues don't go away in a global pandemic. And so while there was a slowdown in calls for service two weeks, we've seen that back, um, back to our usual. We aren't seeing an increase per se, um, but we are seeing uh, calls for usual. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your leadership on this. Uh, something that folks in the community may or may not know if they've seen Kara speak or had a, an opportunity to meet her, but she's an incredibly practical and reasonable and responsive leader. And we're very, very lucky to have her leading our police force here. Uh, so thanks so much for this. Absolutely. So we're here with Louise Walker, the Executive Director of the Squamish Chamber of Commerce, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about what's happening with the economic impact locally here. Uh, Louise, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the Chamber does, first of all? Sure. So the, the Chamber is a member-based uh, business association. We represent about 600 members in the community, and we do business advocacy, so we connect with our elected officials and make sure that we're the voice of business. We also put on events, networking, and supply bus business resources and support to grow business. Um, things have changed a little bit in the last few weeks in that we are still a member-based organization, but all of our support is for all businesses at the moment. We're really just thinking about Squamish as a whole. So tell us a little bit about what you're hearing from businesses. How are people managing? Um, so we have done another survey with our with uh, businesses in the last two weeks and approximately half of them have experienced revenue decreases um, of 75% or more, while two-thirds have seen revenues drop by 50% uh, or more. So the data is starting to paint quite an ominous picture of what businesses and workers are experiencing now and, and what they can expect to face in the future. 
Um, we, we did ask around, uh, you know, the effectiveness of government support and opinions are divided there. Um, with, with the top three recommendations coming out to reduce tax and defer payments, to consider remedies for businesses not able to pay rent and to provide direct support to BC industry sectors that are being particularly impacted. Uh, and we do obviously understand that governments are trying to find the right solution, but um, time is of the essence and we're starting to hear more from the micro businesses, so, so consultants, small producers, and they have lost a lot of revenue, but they don't qualify for the CERB um, unless they have no income. So they're in a difficult no-win situation where they don't want to stop working, they don't want to close their business, um, but there's there's no option for them right now. And is that because the people aren't engaging them for their services or are they not allowed to continue to function? It is like every business, we're all seeing revenues decrease for various reasons, whether it's events or health and safety reasons. But um, some of those businesses are still seeing a small amount of revenue come in. But to qualify for the emergency response benefit, you have to have no income. So you have to have been shut down for uh, sort of categorical reasons rather than just seeing a slowdown in your business. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what are, the sorry, what are the supports for people who are um, experiencing a loss of revenue but not a shutdown? Is there anything available for them? There's definitely um, measures that help perhaps the, the, the slightly larger, medium-sized and smaller businesses. So there's the 75% wage subsidy, which is, is great to help employer, employees stay in their jobs. There is also a range of loans that you can access and a huge amount of tax deferrals. Although, of course, deferrals do catch up with you. It's not no pay, you have to pay them eventually. Um, but f for these smaller ones, the, the self-employed consultants, that hasn't really been addressed yet. Right, you couldn't access this, the wage subsidy if you're on your own as a consultant? No, no, that doesn't apply to you. And, and a lot of these businesses don't want to get into debt. Right, of course, because they're small and later on their cash flow is going to be hit with the, the servicing. Which sectors are you finding are more impacted than others at this point? Overall, we're finding everyone's impacted. So uh, we did the survey about two weeks ago and it said that 94% of businesses were impacted by it. I'd imagine that's prob probably 99 or 100% by now. But um, there are some sectors that are seeing it a bit more extreme, so we're seeing some of the, the smaller micro-businesses been hit hard, um, and obviously tourism is is definitely impacted with many businesses there just not able to, to operate. Um, we did do an economic impact of the, the tourism sector in partnership with Tourism Squamish and the district, and it really identified the importance of that sector to, to Squamish. It creates, I think, nearly 800 jobs, um, and generates 95 million in visitor spending. So it's really important that we support every sector. Uh, tourism is going to be a little bit different in that the, the rebound uh, will be different and depends on um, the return of international visitors. Not that that's necessarily a key market for Squamish, but until we see the return of international visitors to the whole of BC, we're going to see more competition for that regional market. And so that's why it's really important that right now we take the, the right actions around social distancing, um, but also messaging to ensure that we don't negatively impact our reputation because we are going to want visitors to come back when the time is right. So we're coming up on the Easter long weekend here in a few days and the weather is supposed to be nice. Um, this past weekend we saw 5,000 vehicles up the Squamish Valley of people coming presumably regionally to recreate in our backcountry and for some of those folks it's you know you drive out to the wilderness and you enjoy the wilderness and then you get back in your car and you leave and it's not necessarily a problem but RCMP got a lot of calls this weekend for people who were congregating in large groups you know visiting grocery stores 10 people piling out of a couple vehicles to go into the independent and buy a granola bar or whatever um, we uh, certainly don't want that kind of activity in our community and so we're preparing to uh, dissuade visitors this weekend 
I imagine that's uh, people are feeling really conflicted about that in the tourism sector. Is that true? I think Tourism Squamish would be best to answer that question, but it, it's really important that our messaging isn't... We, we make sure that it's short-term and that we want people to come back and that we don't negatively impact our messaging. And I think we also have to be aware that we're all part of the problem. Um, so, yeah, go for a hike by yourself or with your close family. Go for a ride with your immediate family. But um, we should all be staying away from those parking lots and, and the, the multi-person vehicle trips. We have to take that on as residents of our community as well. Absolutely. And I think when people visit somewhere, they don't think about the same level of responsibility that they may in their home community. And you feel like, oh, that's Squamish's grocery store, so I can go in there. But the impact that we're trying to have here is cross-border uh, global impact. It only works if everybody does it everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, um, it is going to be critical this weekend to watch the long weekend recreational activity. Um, what else? What, what would you like to add that we haven't talked about? Um, I think it's just important to recognize that a, a lot of businesses are trying really hard to keep their, their business in operation. Um, so that might be increasing efforts towards more online or digital options. Uh, they, uh, they are expecting the rebound to be slow. So um, in the recent survey, 55% expect it to be slow for the rebound as opposed to 14% for five. Um, and about a third just don't really know, which is quite understandable. But I think we all, and, and going back to the, we all have to take measures, we all have to support our local businesses. Uh, and as residents, that means that we also have to respect social distancing within our own community. What do you think we can do to increase resilience as a local economy? Right now, I think we're probably still in the response um, stage, which is making sure that businesses have access to finances. That's the main thing for businesses, that whether that is wage subsidies or loans or the, the missing gap for those micro businesses or we haven't really addressed anything for uh, commercial leases. Those are the things that people really, they're still in that response mode. And then as we move forward, we have to um, start planning for the future. And, and that's why with tourism, it's really important that we don't negatively impact our reputation in the short term, because in the long term, we want those visitors to come back. They want us to think of Squamish as a welcoming, authentic, great place to come and enjoy the outdoors. Okay, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. Thank you. Thomasina Pigeon is here with us. She's one of the co-founders of the Vehicle Residents of Squamish group that is uh, a coalition of folks who live in their vehicles, um, typically year-round residents who live and work in our community. And uh, we've asked her here to join us to have some conversation about what are the unique issues that people are facing uh, amid the COVID pandemic and the public health orders if they are not in a house where they can effectively self-isolate and um, close their door and make food in their kitchen and all of these things that people who live in their houses don't normally think about. Um, so she's going to share with us a little bit about that. Um, so Thomasina, tell us about what you're seeing in your community among vehicle dwellers. What are How are people coping? Um, well, to be honest, I'm not really seeing too much because I've been kind of staying away and I think everyone's doing a pretty good job at not uh, socializing. So uh, I can only tell you what I'm hearing. Um, there's definitely some issues around the bathroom closures. The BC Parks just shut down the chief. So the people from there were kind of freaking out about where to go because they didn't want to go to town and they kind of disrespect certain guidelines of not, you know, not staying in your houses. But with that place closed uh, and a lot of the other options closed down, they're just wondering, oh, where do we go? Uh, so that's one thing, and then the bathroom problem. So there's a lot of bathrooms in town and just outside of town of the parks that aren't accessible. So where are people supposed to go to the bathroom? I mean, I drove around the other day just to see, I wanted to get an eye, a, a view of like how many people are actually in vehicles that are around. And I went up to the the, the Sandman, which I never, I never ever stay there just because it's, I just don't. But um, as I was driving in, there's a group of people that were walking their dogs, like actually quite a large group, like six people. And I could just tell by they were, the way they were looking at me, like, oh, what's that band dweller doing there? And I was actually just doing a head count to see how many people were there. And there's 15 RVs 
which was surprised me because I just I never ever go up there so I never know but it was surprised to see 15 people and then I'm like oh well how do they go to the bathroom and where do they maybe the RVs are fitted out for that but then how are they going to dump since the only place to dump is Alice Lake and I think Canadian Tire but I'm not sure about that one so yeah so dumping facilities I think that would also be an issue for people in RVs and how many people do you think are living in their vehicles right now in Squamish in total? Uh, Rufi and I, we were just chatting, and we estimate about 100 and probably probably over 100, maybe 125 to be generous. Um, 125 vehicles. Yeah, 125 vehicles. I know some people have two people in a vehicle, so yeah, we're guessing around that amount. What about showers? Has that been... A, a, with the closure of Brennan Park and are there other facilities that have closed that were shower options for folks? Um, yeah, definitely the climbing gyms, the gym down the road. That's I have members here that just come for showers. Um, so what are people doing? I have no idea. <laughs> There's a couple women from um, that are in vehicles that they rented a hotel just so that they could shower and have a bathroom. Um, so, I mean, that's going to add up for them. And then Brennan Park. And Brennan yeah. Park, which we've just opened from 7 to 9 and 4 to 6 for um, for people to use showers who don't have other options. But we don't have laundry facilities there. Yeah. So that, that'll continue to be an issue. So, so people's ability to self-isolate, I know, is an issue, too, if they've been directed by 811 or um, the hospital or clinic to self-isolate because they have a risk or a confirmed case. That's obviously going to be really challenging if you don't have a kitchen or a bathroom in your vehicle. Have you talked to anybody who this has been a challenge for? Do you do you know what people are doing, how they're coping? Like someone that's sick or that has symptoms? Yeah, or um, who needs to self-isolate because of... Uh, oh, having traveled. Travel. Yeah, I know yeah. a few people that have just gotten back from traveling and they're self-isolate. I don't know how they're, I don't know how they're doing it. <laughs> like, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know. Like, I know Rufio is self-isolating. Um, I don't know how he's getting his food. Maybe he already has two weeks supply in his car. Um, I know some people are getting groceries. For, I've gotten groceries for a few people that needed it and dropped it off. But um, besides that, like I just I know like from my own life that I don't have that much space to store food. So I definitely have to go to the grocery store more often than someone that has a house and that can store stuff in a fridge. Um, so, yeah, there's a bunch of van people that have to just go to, they go to the grocery store every day. And that's not really ideal when, you know, they're trying to limit the people. But we really don't have space to hoard things, you know. So that's one thing to consider. Like, we kind of have to go to the grocery store. We can't stockpile stuff like most most houses. And so are, are there resources that you need that you don't currently have access to that w would be helpful for that? I think I think... Just in general, like to have a list of places that uh, people know that they can go to to take shower, to use laundry, uh, to use internet if they have to. Um, and then if they are sick, like what do they do? Like how are they going to reach out? Like it's, if you're in your van and you don't have internet, then you might have a phone. Like is there, uh, like does that 811 number, do they have directions that they can give people that don't have like that aren't so easy to reach out to. It's a great point. If you can't sit on the phone all day, yeah, and wait to get through to eight one one, and they can't call you back, the, there's barriers in place to accessing information. Yeah, yeah. Like um, I think ideally, like Squamish really needs a, sorry, a person that's gonna kind of know where the general spots are that people in vans go to, um, either to put something on their windshield or just to post on a bulletin board, like say at the smoke bluffs or at the Sandman, like someone that's just going to go around and like kind of hit up all the vehicles and tell them, okay, this is what happens if you're, if you need laundry, you know, just like a little list of guidelines of stuff that they can resource. And also if they need help, like a number to call. So outreach. Yeah. An outreach worker, but not necessarily like, you know, like a, a social worker, just someone that's kind of like, Hey, we know you guys are out here. You maybe you need a little bit of help. Right. So you're not stuck in your van sick and cold and yeah like I think that's definitely lacking I mean considering the history of Squamish and all the, the history of people living in their vehicles here it's surprising that it's not there already but I mean maybe this will help um, make it make that happen because they'll realize oh you know we actually we do need these certain things which I think is something good that's coming out of this whole COVID thing there's a lot of more there's a lot more support coming for certain people that you know like 
I was just listening to CBC and they were saying how this woman, she was an artist and she was basically, she was with a disability and with COVID, um, the, the emergency relief fund, whatever, she was going to be getting more money than she usually had, which was, you know, it's still not that much money, but still it's more than what she was getting before. So I think it's going to help spread, spread the money a little better than it has been. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so is there anything else you want to, the public to know or the community to know that we haven't talked about on this issue? Um, well, I think one thing that the public should, or at least have a little more compassion and understanding is that there's not that many spots in Squamish left where we can actually go and park. Um, like we're being asked to not go far away just so that when, if we do get sick, we're not like unreachable and out there in the woods dying. And uh, two, like they've closed down a lot of the back roads and the parks and stuff, so and the campgrounds. So there's going to be a lot more vehicles in town. So, I mean, one thing, just like, okay, you know what? These people have nowhere to go. So just maybe just give them a little grace and understand that they're living like that for whatever the reason is. Um, and to have an open mind about people that live in vehicles. You know, it's not, there's a stigma, and I think that some of that stigma can be erased if we have an open mind and we maybe even chat to them and see what their story is. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. So we are with Mayor Karen Elliott, and we're going to have a bit of a conversation following the uh, chats we've had with other folks about the different areas of uh, activity and concern and things that are happening in the community. And Karen's going to share a little bit with us about what's being done to mitigate some of these these risks and impacts. But first, Karen, how are you doing? What's your life like right now? Um, well, I, it's busy. There's no doubt about it. And... Um, I wake up every morning grateful um, for the amazing staff we have here at the district. So the real experts that um, have been trained to manage these kinds of emergencies. And um, I'm also, you know, and, and I do try and look on the bright side here. There's a lot that is a little bit crazy and stressful. And, but I have just seen so much um, partnership and collaboration with my colleagues in the corridor, with the health authority, uh, with the provincial government. And, you know, when, when you hear the province say we're trying to take an all-of-government approach, I feel that. I, I really feel like everyone's trying to stay on the same page. Our MLA, our MP check in with me twice a week. Um, so, you know, I it is stressful, but I feel like I have a tremendous amount of support. And I would even say that um, the community is is responding in a in a helpful and positive way. And I know people are stressed out and they definitely have concerns and I'm glad we're gonna talk about some of those today. But I've also really appreciated the messages of support that we've been receiving at the district as well. And that's what keeps us going, so. I got an email last week from a community member who said, you know, I can't remember what the subject line was, but it was something kind of businessy, like it was a content thing. And then the body of the email said, you're doing such a great job, you guys. Thank you so much. And I was so, when I opened it, I was so ready to be like, okay, what, you know, what's this going to be about? How am I going to figure this out? And then it was just a message of kindness and support and gratitude. And it was a really big deal. Yeah, it does. Those help. And, um, and you know, if you, we could do a whole other episode about, you know, what it's like to share your home 24-7 with an, a working spouse as well as yourself and two kids that should be in school but are trying to, you know, learn from home. And, yeah, that's a whole other episode, Natasha. So It's a whole other episode. I just have a lot of empathy for um, people who are in their homes, and it's not easy. And we've changed how we live and work and play in the last month. Um, so, you know, I, I would be lying if I wasn't feeling some of the stress of, of that and the, the pressure that's on me as a leader and as a mother and a spouse um, and also a family member trying to just stay on top of keeping in touch with the people that I love. There's yeah. definitely a lot of wild-eyed connection between parents who are at home with their children right now <laughs> it's trying true. to hold down a job. It is real. Like, my kids are they're having an amazing time that they don't have to, you know, get in the car and get their bags packed and go to school every day. But yeah, I'm on the phone like all day. It's really, it's really a challenge, but we're all in the same boat. And I think that's, 
really helpful too to have some space and patience for each other that nobody has childcare right now. Uh, speaking of which, do you want to talk a little bit about the work that the school district and Cedar Sky and the district have done around childcare for essential service workers? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that. And um, I know this is an area that is stressful for families. Um, and really, you know, the guidance has been if you can care for your children at home, please do so. Um, and, but we have workers that are now part of the essential services list and they need to show up at work and I'm grateful that they do, but their children need care. And um, certainly we've been working internally to understand how many of our essential service workers need care. Uh, the school district has been mandated to provide that care through their schools and, and they're really working to, to figure out what that looks like and um, so that it gives both families confidence um, as well as the, the folks that are overseeing those kids. But what I've seen is a real collaborative approach to try and, and figure this out together and make sure that those who need care will have it in, in the days and weeks to come. Um, and, and I know that will make some people in our community nervous that there's any childcare providers open at all. Um, you know, some families have been using older parents to look after their kids and that's really not an ideal solution. We actually really need to make sure the seniors and elders in our community are protected and, and young people are great transmitters of, of bugs. So, um, you know, for those families that do need care, you know, we've got to figure out a way to move it forward. There's been uh, quite a bit of back and forth in our world over the last few weeks about the definition of essential service workers and trying to um, broaden the scope a little bit so we can have access to things like emergency childcare and access to tests, uh, COVID testing and that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics at play with the definition? Hmm. It's not a conversation that I get to be involved in very often at my level that really is set by the province. Um, I think for me, um, my advocacy around it was really uh, making sure that our first responders in terms of firefighters and RCMP uh, could get access to testing so that if they came down with symptoms, we would know whether they're at home with a cold and we could redeploy them very quickly once they were feeling better or whether they truly has, have this virus and we need to make sure they follow the quarantine and stay home for, for the recommended amount of time. Um, I, it's hard, you know, I, I think provincial plans you can have on paper that you're ready for a pandemic, but understanding how many labs you need in order to test thousands and thousands of people and getting all of those swabs available and then setting up the process so that you can test people safely so that they're not coming into contact with others who may not be sick. This all takes logistics. And I think right now in BC, we have uh, quite a strict testing regime. Um, I think that makes sense for the time that we're in right now. And as we start to come out of so social isolation, we may need to change how we're testing. We may need to test more people in order to um, allow ourselves more freedom um, in the coming months. But right now, we're still in a response mode and we need to preserve our resources for those key people, healthcare, long-term care providers, residents in long-term care, and those presenting symptoms and that may be part of a community outbreak. So I'm supportive uh, of the direction the province is taking right now. Um, and, and most of us can weather this at home. If we feel unwell, stay home. Um, and there might come a day where, you know, you might be able to go and get tested to see if you've had it um, and you've got the antibodies. But, you know, I think unless you really need hospitalization, it's okay if you don't get tested. One of the more um, uh, challenging and painful areas of discussion around this is about our local economy and the impact that we're having. We heard from Louise Walker from the Chamber earlier about the kinds of impacts businesses are facing, particularly very small businesses or those in uh, the tourism sector. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing people doing in response to the impacts on the economy. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just really proud of um, our Chamber 
um, Tourism Squamish and our own economic development staff that knew right away that the way forward was, you know, we're in this together. And making sure that early and often all of the information that was coming from the province and the federal government was available to our small businesses. This is not easy stuff to wade through, like, do I qualify for this or do I qualify for that? Um, and you're, you're in a situation where you may have already closed your business and that is your family or individual income and that has put you in a place of great amount of stress. So um, I have seen businesses really uh, reaching out to each other you know, that whole, what are you guys doing? What am I doing? And um, how can we do this together? Um, and, you know, even if you ask our MP, Patrick Weiler, um, we've seen programs coming from the federal government that would have in the past taken months or years to develop. And we are stretching the public service, asking them to come up with um, support packages in a matter of days and weeks. And so, no, not all the details are worked out. And yes, it can be a confusing time for small business owners, and I really feel for them. Um, but they should know that I am here to advocate to the province and the federal government where there are policy gaps. But Patrick has made uh, him and his staff available to try and answer these questions. Um, and I've encouraged our chamber to think about um, maybe some of the more practical aspects of of life for small business. So. Um, you know, if, if there's a small business that's, let's say, a gym, and they've got a great accountant that is helping them wade through all their decision making, maybe you do a virtual call with all the local gyms and your accountant, and you can sort of, you know, as a sector, um, try and understand, uh, you know, what benefits you can take advantage of, and um, where are the drawbacks, and what are the things to look out for. And, you know, maybe Craft Beverage Association does the same thing. Um, just work together to find, to answer all those little nitpicky questions. And I also think, you know, when people have the headspace, we have to start thinking about what it might look like to emerge from this. And so businesses that are closed now, um, whether because they couldn't find staff that felt confident enough to come in, um, or just out of a moral sense of like, I'm going to do my part and close my business. Um, but people will need to find a new way to open. And we have to do the same thing here at the district. So technically, we don't have to close Brennan Park or the library. We did. I think it's given us some breathing space. But how do we open up our facilities and City Hall to the public again in a way that gives our staff confidence and gives the community confidence? And we, ha we all have to start thinking about opening again um, in the coming weeks. We won't be in this space for forever or this time and place so that you know once we sort out the details of of sort of support financial support how does it look like to open my business in a new reality one of the things that um, has surfaced that may not be top of mind for many residents is the additional challenges faced by people who are homeless or who live in vehicles can you talk a little bit about what we've done to support those challenges yeah it's um you know, quite early in this crisis, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry and uh, Minister Adrian Dix, who's a Minister of Health, had a conference call with every mayor and regional chair in the province. There was 172 of us, I think, on the call. Um, and Minister Dix was very clear. He said, your job right now is to protect the seniors and elders in your community and to protect those who are most vulnerable. And um, I don't, I can't speak for my colleagues, but I really took that to heart. And um, so, you know, we did open Brennan Park back up and the Junction Park public washrooms to help those who um, may be precariously housed and just need access to a shower and to a public washroom. Um, and then we've been working very hard behind the scenes with BC Housing and Squamish Helping Hands to figure out a plan for um, our community members that are, are hard to house. And, and we're working towards, I think, a really good outcome until Under One Roof opens um, this fall. So, you know, hope to be able to share that with the community in the coming days. But, uh, you know, 
we have to take care of everyone in this situation in the same way we would have to take care of everyone in a flood or a fire. And these vulnerable folks, they need our, our support. Um, it, you know, we all may find it tough to be stuck behind our four walls, um, but at least we have those four walls. Um, and that gives us a sense of security and safety. And so that is what we need to provide uh, for all of our community members right now, for the safety of the staff that are supporting them and for their own health and safety as well. The feedback from the community about the measures that we've taken in terms of access to public bathrooms and showers, not just from the vehicle dwelling community, but the community at large, has also, I think, it's been so positive and it's really spoken to people's um, compassion and commitment to taking care of each other. And as, as you suggest, the whole community, not just kind of every person for themselves. And that's been very heartening too. I think we are in many ways seeing the best of people coming out. Yeah. it's. It's so important for us to remember that we are all in this together, and I think lots of different leaders continue to reiterate that message. And, and you saw in the early days of this sort of the hoarding and the over-toilet paper buying, which so weird is strange, and that really is uh, I'm looking out for me kind of um, response, and I think quite natural in, a, in an emergency. What's been heartwarming is to see... Um, people, you know, helping out their neighbors who, ha you know, have come back from travel and they're delivering food or folks that have come down with an illness, whether it's COVID or just a cold, who knows, but they're not leaving their house and, and delivering groceries. And um, the seven o'clock, uh, you know, celebration for our healthcare workers and first responders, that's like an anchor in my day. And it's great because it gives us all a chance to wave at our neighbors and connect even if we can't um, be close to people right now. Um, and so I even my daughter said that, you know, as, as she's been hanging out with her friends, she said, this has made my friends, you know, kinder too. We're all really being very supportive of each other. So, you know, there are silver linings to when bad things happen. And, and I guess as a community, I want us to think about what do we want to preserve about what we've learned uh, through this pandemic? Um, to take into what will become our new sort of status quo, our new way of normal. Are there things that we've learned from our experience that we might want to hold on to? Absolutely. So talk to us about the weekend. We have the long weekend coming up. It is going to be a nice weekend. Yep. Um, what are we going to see? Um, do we have hotspots? Yes, and we will ask the province to help us look at those hotspots. One that the, uh, the regional district and myself are looking at is the Squamish Valley. Every weekend so far, it's just been a bit of a gong show out there. And the residents are getting stressed about it, rightly so. Um, Squamish Nation members are also concerned it impacts them. So um, we're working on it very, very actively. That is our primary focus this week on so many fronts is um, getting some additional support from the province for this weekend. Uh, you People, if they listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry um, each week, she has included this messaging um, in her daily briefings about not visiting rural communities, not leaving the lower mainland. She'll continue to do that. This has also been raised as an issue through the health authority, so they're talking about it as well. I know that our message is getting through um, some of my friends down in the Lower Mainland have either heard it from me or Mayor Crompton or the chair of the regional district, Chair Rainbow. So we know it's starting to have an impact. We will do another media um, ask this week uh, and try and get that message out again. Um, and, and I'm going to have to ask people to be patient. It may not be perfect this weekend. We're going to do the best we can. Um, and I just remind people, take care of your two meters. That's what you need to be most focused on, your two meters around you and your loved ones. Um, we're not gonna convince everyone to maintain theirs, but we do have control over our own actions and we are a tourism community. So I don't want to see people yelling at out of towners. I don't want people to start that sort of confrontation if they do see people from out of town. L leave them be. Um, you know, write letters to editors down in the Lower Mainland, you know, find positive ways to get the message out, but 
I want us to come out of this with people knowing that we are a welcoming and kind community. And so we'll work hard on the please stay away messaging. And then I'll just ask our local residents to recreate safely this weekend. Um, mind your two meters and uh, we'll do the best we can to uh, dissuade visitors from using our town as a vacation spot this weekend. Okay, anything else you'd like to add that we didn't talk about and you think the community should hear from you? Uh, I think the important thing for me is that as a leader, information is really important. Um, I can't be everywhere and I can't know the experiences of every business um, or every family. So if you believe there are gaps in our approach, if you think there are gaps in the policy that's coming from the province or from the federal government, I'm happy to hear about those. Um, I'm doing my best to, to write back to people who write to me uh, with the information that I do have or point them in the direction where they can get more. Um, I, as I said, I'm on the phone a lot with um, uh, the province or the health authority and I'm happy to try and, and get answers to those questions but the more people communicate with myself and my fellow council members and let us know um, where we could be doing better and where we've done a great job as we said at the beginning of this sometimes it's just nice to hear that something's worked and people appreciate it um, and that keeps our staff going and that's really really helpful um, but please do keep in touch it's, it's really very helpful to me to see where we've, we've done a good job and where we still need to do some, some more work. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. We know that this was a longer episode and we appreciate you sticking with us and hope that we helped fill your day with good information and thoughtful discussion. If you have any feedback about anything you heard today or have ideas for new episodes, please email us at communications at squamish.ca. Thanks so much.